From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory, your weekly download on how to untangle healthcare's most pressing challenges. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. We're not that far into 2024, and if I'm honest, we've already spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the financial dynamics impacting health systems. And we all know that surgical services are going to be a big part of their economic outlook. Here's the thing. If I were to Google right now, what is the future of surgery? I would probably see a bunch of headlines about robots entering the operating room. Things that maybe make for a good cable TV show because they're novel, they're flashy, but I'm not sure they're actually going to address the real challenges that surgery leaders are facing today, let alone health system economics writ large. So today I want to talk about what the future of surgery will actually look like. To do that, I've brought three advisory board experts, Isis Montero, Miles Cotier, and Paul Trigonopoulos. They're going to talk about what's next in surgery and what it will take to see surgery reclaim its margins. Isis, Miles, Paul, welcome to all three of you back on Radio Advisory. Morning. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Good to be back. So I want to admit to you from the start, I was up late last night. Our listeners are going to figure out really quickly when we recorded this episode. I was up late last night watching the Grammys. And I'll be honest, I never really watch cable TV anymore. And an advertisement came up for a local hospital system near me. I will not name this organization, but they started talking about why patients, consumers should come choose that hospital. They were listing off all of these cool things. And I'm not kidding. One of the things they talked about were the cool like tech products, the cool innovations that they have as part of their surgery. And that's what I and the general public and the people who made this ad clearly think about when they think about the future of surgery. What would you have said to me if you were sitting on the couch last night with me watching the Grammys when we saw that advertisement come up? I would have asked if they were a center of excellence. (laughs) I don't think they were. They didn't say anything. It wasn't a specific service line. It wasn't a specific uh, specialty. It was just general. And then they moved on to other things, the new campus, the new parking situation, honestly. (laughs) But seriously, is the future of surgery these new fancy things that we can can add into ORs? So I'm not going to sit here and say that robots are not going to be where innovation comes in the future. There's a new robot for a different subspecialty coming out that seems like every week or every couple of weeks globally. It's not just Da Vinci and Hugo um, anymore. It's worth talking about that robots are capable of much, much more. They're a lot smaller than they used to be. Da Vinci's new model can do valve replacements in the heart. In 2021, we even saw Hopkins trained uh, a robot to completely autonomously in terms of planning and delivering a surgery, doing four cases where they connected two ends of a, of a pig intestine. You're making me think so far that the commercial was right then. I think that robots are going to be here and they're going to continue to be a part of surgery. I would also push to ask for the vantage point. When you talk to certain surgeons or medical device companies or centers of excellence, or you go to a conference, you're going to see a lot about robots. Yeah. But for your average hospital and health system, and you can even extend that to just provider in general. um, At the end of the day, I don't know if this like, 
stepwise hardware improvement innovation is going to be where the big focus is, at least in the next five to 10 years. Hmm. Then how would you characterize the future of surgery in the next decade? If you are talking about the health system and you ground the conversation, sort of what they're feeling and the problems they're dealing with, the future is something much less flashy. And I think it's going to end up being a lot more about software and what the OR feels like and how efficient it is than something like hardware. I appreciate this. And I'll be honest, I get a little bit nervous when I see other outlets talk about the future of X, whether, frankly, whether it's something about healthcare or otherwise, because there's always in this temptation to talk about the shiny new thing, right? That's something I've been very mindful of over the last uh, uh, 14 months with, with the, the onset of generative AI. So I almost want us to ground this conversation about the future in actual challenges, challenges of the present. And I'll be honest, over the last few episodes, I know that you all have been listening. We've talked a lot about health system economics. We've talked about the fact that high profit volumes like surgery play a very big role in protecting system margins and that those are moving into more and more outpatient settings. So how should we actually diagnose the biggest challenges in surgery? Is it merely just this volume shift or are there other things we should be paying attention to? I think for the health system, especially, it, it is around the growth in demand and then comparatively the limited supply on ORs and on, on surgeons, on anesthesiologists compared to it, at least in the next decade. And that's for a few reasons, mostly demographic. Um, and that's happening around the world. And we're seeing it really impact, to your point, operations and margin and access right now, which are all very core um, pillars of any any provider organization. And we're seeing it shape out now already in a few ways. First, there's been what, what we've been calling a decoupling of margin and volume. Yeah, yeah. The cost per case around the world is going way, way up, namely inflation and labor costs. Uh, we surveyed uh, some U.S. chief strategy officers late last year. And of the people that expected volume increases by the end of 2023, about half of them expected margin decreases, right? Hmm. Even though volumes are coming back, right? We waited a long time for the volume shift in the pandemic to finally come back to to hospitals, in particular when we were, we were looking at these high profit surgeries. And you're saying that even if those volumes are are back, margins are not. Yeah, I mean, we've got a couple quotes from from interviews that I think speak to this. One last year said that this is the first time in my 30 year career where beds are full and I have no margin. Wow. And just bringing it back to robots for a second, when I when I was down in Australia for work in November, uh, we had a session on the future of surgery. And one of the directors of strategy said, if you ever come across a robot that has proof to help my margin, let me know. But until then, like I'm going off the assumption that that's not a solution to that problem. Oh, I think wow. that's where a lot of health systems are coming from right now. Yeah, I think part of the problem as well is that our historical solution set just isn't going far enough anymore. Adding more beds, adding more staff, buying more stuff mm -hmm. hasn't led to enough productivity gains to be able to keep pace with this demand growth. So even improvement initiatives that have been effective historically, like expanding the scope of uh, practice for surgical staff, pulling forward patient prep and anesthesia, implementing early discharge strategies and et cetera, those haven't been sufficient. Hmm. And so health systems have to look to new solutions and an entirely different approach 
and able to um, be able to address the challenges that we just discussed. I really appreciate this take, Isis, because you're saying that, first of all, the problem is not that we don't have the right kind of luring innovations to bring in the next generation of consumers. We actually have a different problem that we need to be solving. We have we have the margin problem. And you're also saying that the tools that we have at our disposal that we usually use just aren't going to be enough. It's also worth talking about a reality that I think, especially in surgery, takes shape that I don't think we appreciate enough, which is that we are really victims of our own success in many ways. So anytime you make some new innovation that makes uh, something smaller or better or faster, you expand access. Yes. You expand the amount of cases you can do. Yes, drugs may take the place of procedures in some cases. I don't know if that's imminent. And I don't know if that's going to be at the scale that we need to solve this supply problem. Hmm. You've mentioned a couple of individual players in the health system, right? You mentioned the chief strategy officer, for example. I want to channel actually the health system planner, in part because I know we've done some some surveys here and we, we've tried to look at what is the top priority for strategic planners at health systems in 2024. And what came up overwhelmingly, is operational efficiency. And anyone who's been listening to episodes this year should know that that's not a surprise because our colleague Vidal said that hospitals have basically had to put pedal to the floor and focus relentlessly on being a good operator. My question is, and I'll admit, I don't know that I really know how operational inefficiency actually plays out in surgery. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised, given the kind of the margin commentary I had before, I'm not surprised that it it shot to the top. Depending on who and where you are, surgery makes up like 30 to 70% of, of your volumes. It is pretty core to the acute care enterprise. And to answer your question, and this is kind of what we spent most of our time doing last year in interviews, is understanding the status quo of what systems are and are not doing in the way of operational efficiency with surgery. Most systems do not have real-time visibility into OR supply. They don't have real-time visibility mm. into surgeon capacity across like a footprint. Um, they predict OR blocks that are too short or too long. They The inaccuracies mess with each OR's schedule each day. They cause overruns and overtime. They either haven't equipped surgeons with the tools they need to speed up the pre-op planning process, which is quite time-consuming. They still resource and staff every single OR they have to the gills just wow. in case they need to yeah. get certain cases. All these types of things, I mean, th there's inefficiencies in all of them. And unpacking what organizations around the world are doing to solve them is kind of where we focused our research on. I wanted to kind of jump off Paul's point um, and actually give some systems credit. In fact, most systems credit, right? Because um, I think we have seen some systems, most systems take iterative steps to improve operational efficiency but you know if you're thinking about things like staffing or or, or less wasteful resourcing or um like the big one at the moment right shifting cases to ambulatory they are not in isolation yes. nor are they the wrong thing to do but we are not very good at at, at scaling them up right increasing mm. efficiency at the scale that we need to actually drive up the ability to meet demand right um not just in subspecialties or certain surgeons and, and margin, right, is what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about shoring up the, the hospital business, right? The surgery business here. So I do want to move from problem to talking about the opportunities, talking about the solutions. 
help me understand where even are the opportunities to improve efficiency in surgery? A few themes came up out of our research around the capabilities that health systems are developing to address these capacity and financial pressures. So we see market-leading systems investing in novel solutions to do three things. The first is proactively manage demand and match surgeon and OR supply to meet that demand. The second is investing in technologies that enable surgeons to make more accurate treatment decisions earlier in the patient journey, hmm. so predictive treatment planning. And the third is tiering their ORs by case complexity or case type. And this is what we mean when we say hyper-efficient operating rooms. Hmm. Okay. I, I do want to make sure we have time to talk about all three of these. The first one honestly feels the most replicable to me, right? You were talking about patient flow. You were talking about scheduling. How, how does this currently work when it comes to surgery? Where's the opportunity to actually improve here? Yeah. So I think to Paul's point earlier is that health systems, again, very limited visibility into demand and OR and surgeon capacity across their entire system or region which leads to an uneven distribution of cases across their ORs. And so surgeons can't perform as many cases as they could otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that you could say is suboptimal is the number of cases that health systems use to determine how long an OR block should be. So again, they're using an average of the past 10 to 15 cases to schedule an OR block. And that's not nearly enough data to be as precise as you need to be in order to minimize uh, overruns or reduce idle time. And the last thing on this patient flow bucket is that health systems, again, have very limited ability to predict when uh, appointments are going to be canceled and to proactively intervene to prevent that OR block time from being wasted. So again, each of these three things contributes to long wait times, uh, to consultations and to treatments and to idle or unused OR time and to costs as well. And I should say the things that you're talking about are, are they're, they're super technical, but this is the stuff that works. This is the stuff that we know that health systems, hospitals need to be focused on right now when it comes to being that hyper-efficient operator. And you're reminding me of a lot of the recommendations that we've actually given to health leaders on the ambulatory side that's been quite successful. It's just maybe finally now moving into surgery. Is there an organization that you can point to and an example that you can point to of someone who's really successfully doing this hard work to solve this operational challenge? Like I said, when it comes to scheduling, which I think if you talk to most members, that is one of the one of the kind of key bottlenecks, there's a lot of inaccuracy. And that that leads to, you know, overruns and that in itself leads to things like uh, you know, impacts of flow and costs and staffing, et cetera. It comes down to the fact that we're only using data from the average, you know, past 10, 15 cases. And that is just not enough. Um, but we found, uh, and I, I, like I said, I love this story. We found uh, an organization in Ontario in Canada called Holton. Um, their head of surgery knew that this problem existed and enlisted the help of his daughter, who conveniently happened to be studying computer science at the time. Um, and together, very convenient. Together, they, they wrote a piece of code, uh, a piece of Python code, whatever that means. Um, and they can scan over, I think it's over 10,000 past cases for somewhere in the realm of 10 to 15 different variables. So procedure, comorbidities, et cetera. Anything that's going to impact the schedule, they can scan that. And the machine learning algorithm that they created spits out a, a recommended schedule, right? And health hmm. systems have that data. 
right? They just need some tool to unpack it. And that has helped them reduce overruns by, it's around 20, 25%, um, which again, saves them a lot of money in the region of, you know, 800,000 um, dollars, Canadian dollars over about three years, just on nursing overtime alone. Oh, wow. Wow. That is such a wholesome story. And it's a good example of looking for creative solutions, asking for support, help, partnership, knowing where you've reached the bounds of what you can do and where you need something else to, to step in. I will, I will also add uh, for any listeners that are interested, and this is even more wholesome, the algorithm is all completely open source and free to download. It's all very altruistic. No way. They, may, they they came up with the solution and they are giving it away for free? We can include it in the show notes. Wow. I know I just mentioned that we have to look at these very kind of technical operational solutions, but what this story reminds me of, Miles, as wholesome as it is, is that we can still do these kind of cool, new age, sexy innovations for these very operational problems. And, and of course, here I'm, I'm talking about AI. So, right, you just gave a, a code example, a machine learning example. Are there other kinds of organizations that are using the next generation of artificial intelligence to help solve some of these very practical problems. Yeah. So I can share the case example from uh, Brazil. I love sharing case studies from my home country. So Albert Einstein created a machine learning algorithm that can predict the likelihood that a surgical procedure is going to be canceled and a kind of important context setting. But in their context, they surgeons can book their own OR times. So they would often book their OR to hold the space even if they didn't have a patient to operate on. And so this would lead to a lot of last minute uh, appointment cancellations if they didn't have someone to complete the procedure on. And so the algorithm that they created is mostly based on non-clinical variables. So who's the surgeon? Uh, how long before the surgery was it scheduled? And what day of the week is the appointment scheduled for? Things like that. And for each appointment that has a high likelihood of cancellation, they have an intervention team that can proactively step in and connect, the, connect to the patient and surgeons to preserve that original appointment. And in the event that they're not able to prevent the cancellation, then they're able to slot in a patient from their wait list. Um, and by implementing this algorithm and other patient flow uh, improvement initiatives, they were able to increase their OR use time by 10%. Oh, wow. Wow. And I like that you're flagging kind of things that are different in the surgery space and what we would see in, in things like primary care, by the way. So for example, we see perhaps not as sophisticated examples of folks using these non-clinical variables to determine if an appointment is going to be uh, is going to be a no-show. We see lots of double bookings there. That's been something that's been really effective in the ambulatory space. I like that you said that the concern here is perhaps not always the patient. Yes. It's the surgeon. Yeah. As we were talking about costs earlier, um, this came to mind. We did some we did some relatively rudimentary number crunching um, because I, I had no idea how mm. much it cost for a surgeon to cancel on the same day as the surgery. And I'm, ge I'm generalizing based on you know geographies and different surgical areas and stuff, but it's around about five thousand yeah. US dollars per cancellation on the same day. So two thousand five hundred euros. Okay, Euro, now you're showing off miles. Uh, US, uh, Australian dollars. Conversions are good. I know, I know. They're all probably horrendously wrong now. Um, yeah. But that's just factoring in the lost OR time, right? That doesn't factor in staffing. That doesn't factor in uh, resourcing. That shows you how much of a boon it is if you can get ahead of those cancellations. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. 
Want to put numbers on the future of surgery in your market? Use Advisory Board's Market Scenario Planner to see volume forecasts by service line, subservice line, and procedure, and how they vary across sites of care. Create your own market definitions to see customized forecasts, or create multiple to compare opportunities across markets. Like all of our data tools, access is included with your research membership. Click the link in the show notes to access the tool. The pipeline for clinical innovation is exploding. New drugs, devices, and AI are changing the landscape of healthcare with seismic implications for patients, care providers, and the delivery system. Join us at Advisory Board's 2024 Clinical Innovation Summit on June 11th and 12th, where we'll explore the most noteworthy clinical innovations in the news today and help you prioritize tangible action steps. You'll have the chance to learn from, brainstorm, and share success stories with peers and colleagues from across the industry. Register now using the link in the show notes or visit advisory.com forward slash events to learn more. You're listening to Radio Advisory. I'm Ray Woods. I have a thought that I almost hesitate to say out loud while we're literally recording, but what you just described are the the obvious dollars that are on the line that no one can afford to lose. And this is where I hesitate to admit this, but the two examples that you just gave, they they seem like easy solutions. They seem like things that we would describe as, I hate this phrase, but low-hanging fruit, right? The things that everyone can do. My question then is, what is stopping the average health system from doing these things? Aside perhaps not having a daughter that happens to, <laughs> to uh, be, be in computer science. We've given the speech version of this to, to folks from like 10 countries, including the U.S. I've never heard any response to those stories other than why don't we do this already? Wow. I don't know what the reason is other than maybe it's just so new and no one ever said that it's, you know, uh, a solution that everyone should consider. I mean, it also requires, I mean, in the scheduling example that we just gave, it requires changing something that I'll just say is incredibly sacred to physicians, let alone surgeons, which are which are their schedules, right, for, for example. And that for a long time has been a bit of a third rail uh, for, for organizations. I would also say that the, um, the end number for, for a lot of these kinds of tools is pretty low. Um, these are emerging technology. So there's, there's a reticence from a lot of health systems to to copy without there being a huge wealth of evidence that these things work every time for each organization and most of them the ones that we discussed already are are built in-house yes so it's so you can't necessarily directly copy it you know verbatim unless they're giving it away for free like the example that we're apparently going to add to the to to the show notes but (laughs) i do think there's a larger point here about when we're going to be doing any of these changes to the operations of any kind of clinical pathway, we have to, of course, be thinking about what that means in terms of our own kind of business economics. We need to think about it in terms of the patient. We also need to think about it in terms of the doctor. And and no solution is going to actually be successful if it makes physicians' lives harder as opposed to easier. So how are we thinking about the kind of workflow side here? When we're talking about clinician resistance, um, I think it isn't about fear of the technology itself, which we might assume, or scapegoat. It's a lack of trust and change leadership. So, 100%. It's not actually about the technology. We like to blame the technology, but yeah. it's never that, actually, in my, in, not, not in my experience. 
Absolutely. So it's more of reaction to how previous rollouts have gone than to the new technology or process itself. So as with anything else, we really have to engage clinicians in the process of developing and implementing these tools uh, to ensure that they are making clinicians' jobs easier and enhancing patient-facing care. The other thing I'm going to add, I think, again, these are all pretty new tools, right? So the incentives don't necessarily exist to like drive up adoption to the level that we want. So when we've been speaking to health systems, we've been speaking about maybe how you can build in some of those softer elements, those softer incentives or penalties, right? So you can get some uptake without making everyone angry in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I think a lot of, especially when it comes to AI and machine learning tools, the successful rollouts usually leave the final decision with the surgeon. So if you've got if you've got a load of um, students or residents shadowing you while you know while you're doing your surgeries, or you know that the, oh my patient today is going to take a lot longer than the surgery scheduling tool suggests, you still have the authority to to change the schedule, right? You have the power to change the schedule yes. if you want to, and I think that's key to to making something like this stick, especially initially. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree agree more. We've talked a lot about scheduling; it's clearly very very important. What about the treatment planning part? We have come across several examples of AI-enabled pre-op planning software that can create customized plans based on individual patient anatomy taken from CT scans or 2D imaging. Um, And this type of software is mostly used for ortho procedures. And we're also seeing examples of extended reality or 3D pre-op planning and intra-op software programs for cardio procedures. Um, And these create like a hologram of the heart, which can allow uh, interventionists to be really precise with device placements. So pretty futuristic stuff happening on the treatment planning side. Hmm. So there is still cool, sexy stuff happening. It's not just managing, managing schedules. Are there examples on the efficient operating room side? Yeah. Um, I mean, ASCs around the world are generally like where you look for what an efficient OR looks like. That being said, it's one thing to partner with a a management company and have them sort of lean Six Sigma, your OR. Most health system owned and operated, even if they're ambulatory ORs, I would say are not that efficient. They run them like they're inpatient ORs. We worked on a case study with an organization in Canada that uh, developed the province's first ASC. In a lot of the ways, it looks like an ASC you'd see in the U.S., but I think they did a few things that go even further. Um, they tier their cases by complexity. So hmm. they have different tiers of complexity, and they adjust the the tool allocation and the nurse FTE count based on the tiers. Um, so the, in the lowest tier, you don't even get a scrub nurse. The hmm. surgeon has to pick up a scalpel. It's, it's finding efficiencies that way. Uh, we've seen them. Uh, gain a lot of improvement. I think they've cut in, in their lowest tier, they cut 56% of their costs per case. The big thing they did that was interesting, they started with an inpatient suite of tools, right? What they had in the inpatient OR, about 120 tools. They got it down to 20 Wow! in their outpatient ORs. And it took two years of pilots to basically convince doctors, like you can still operate on a lot of cases without all of these extra tools. They reduced their tool count by like 80, 85%. Hmm. Uh, they went to their med device companies and said like, we're no longer going to buy your kits, your surgery kits, because like every screw, every plate is up for wow. grabs or negotiation. Yeah. We can't afford to just like 
have these things collecting dust and not use them anymore. And that's also a trend that we're seeing around the world now too. And a big change. Yeah. Um, a little bit of like an emboldened stance, but I mean, it just shows like, this is the margin pressure. Yes. We're under. Mm-hmm. The four of us have spent a lot of this conversation actually talking about what real people listening to this episode should do next. We've talked about a lot of the practical guidance that we want our listeners to take. Before we close this episode, I want to ask the opposite question. What should be at the bottom of leaders' to-do list? What should they not do when it comes to the future of surgery? With one that maybe seems simple, but it's probably pretty hard to do in real life, is just don't go into this type of work and expect to be able to solve it within like a couple months i think Mm. all the case studies we talked about and all the other ones we didn't even get to that are in our future surgery work they all took years right the time it takes to get docs to buy into some new change without pissing everyone off is a meaningfully long and it's that's actually the hard work Mm -hmm. like capital H. I don't think the the hard work is coming up with the ideas or finding the tech in in you know in Googling online. It's it's understanding like how do we how do we do this and enfranchise yes. our partners. Yeah. I'd say as well, if you can do that, I'd say that's that that that's going to open the door for you to for them to to run at the solutions. But I would say don't run at the solution straight away. I, mm. I would start with the the fundamental question is, you know, what work do we need to improve? What is the problem that we want to solve? Or where are the yes. issues in our system that we want to solve, right? Not what amazing technology we can we find that's going to solve it. Um, if we can do that, then we can start to chase the technology that's going to mm-hmm. help us answer those problems or those decisions. So so really, it's it's chase problems, not solutions. That is probably the thing to do. And gets us back to the very first thing we said. We already said, don't chase the fancy robot. Don't also chase the fancy new software. Absolutely. And it's also to that point, it's also not just go build an ASC if to Paul's earlier point, it's just going to replicate the same inefficiencies as the inpatient pathway. We have to be really intentional about where and how we invest our resources and again, create skin in the game for surgeons in these investments as well. Well, Isis, Miles, Paul, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ray. It's been great. Look, it's easy to think about the future of healthcare or the future of surgery specifically as the next cool innovation, the next kind of sexy, shiny object to go chase, the next tool. And yes, I will admit that we spent a lot of this conversation talking about operations, dare I even call it minutia. But I want to be clear, we're actually still talking about innovation. We're talking about software innovation, innovations that, to Miles' point, solves real problems. And that's what the future of surgery and the future of healthcare really needs. And remember, as always, we're here to help. Next week on Radio Advisory. These capabilities based on looking at data of the past and predicting what a human would write in the future are very good, but not completely accurate. And that is because there isn't sentience there. New episodes drop every Tuesday. If you like Radio Advisory, please share it with your networks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Abby Burns, 
Kristen Myers, and Atticus Rosh. The episode was edited by Katie Anderson, with technical support provided by Dan Tyag, Chris Phelps, and Joe Schramm. Additional support was provided by Carson Sisk, Leanne Elston, and Aaron Collins. We'll see you next week. Where are you, Isis? I'm in D.C. D.C., 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 England. Yeah. Do we just kick Miles off the podcast? (laughs) I don't blame you. I don't think that would be fair. I don't think that would be fair.